Welcome to the Exchange Podcast by EW Wealth. As advisors to some of the most successful families in the country, Craig Emanuel, Tim Wyburn, and I, Ryan Lure, draw upon some of the best minds in the country. We believe that by exchanging ideas, we can deliver better advice and better outcomes for the families we work for. Now, we're inviting you on this journey. In this podcast, we interview some of the country's best investment managers, business advisors, bankers, and founders to share their valuable insights. And our hope is that with better information comes better decisions, helping you to achieve more financially. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Exchange Podcast. My name is Ryan Lur, and today I'm very excited to welcome Tayar Mohammed and Paul Westall from Agrius Group. Agrius is a full-service recruitment consultancy dedicated to serving the unique needs of family offices throughout the world. It has an established presence in the United States, in Europe, Asia-Pacific, and the Middle East, solving for the resourcing needs of some of the world's most significant, largest, and successful families. So, Tayab, Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having us. So before we get into a bit of detail, might just be worth diving into some history behind Agrius and also the two of you as founders. So can you just provide, I guess, a, a bit of a summary on your professional background and also, you know, Agrius, you know, what problem uh, were you trying to solve? What was the catalyst behind founding Agrius? Paul and I used to work for a larger firm doing the sort of wealth management and the traditional sort of investment banking, private banking mandates and that kind of thing. And this was around 2009, just in the middle of the financial crisis. And we started seeing an emerging trend, especially in the space that I was in serving that private wealth management, ultra high net worth space. We noticed there was a lot of disgruntlement towards the sort of banks um, among the sort of ultra high net worth families. And if you cast your memory back to then, I think what was the primary driver was they were all unhappy with some of these discretionary mandates mm-hmm. their their money was invested in. And especially if you if you think about the, the mortgage-backed um, uh, securities, uh, some of those really um, uh, structured products that a lot of them didn't understand. And they said, hold on a second, why was my money in this? You know, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm paying you so high fees and all these kind of things for for this and they kind of end up really burning their fingers and that kind of uh pushed for this emotional decision more than anything else to retain control and and they uh, we saw an emerging trend of new family offices being set up um and that's how it all started and we thought why don't we cater to that space a lot more before then our understanding of family offices was more like the more institutional names like the the well-known Rothschilds of the world and the Brennick Myers of mm. the world. And, you know, so we thought that they would be multi-billion dollar institutions, but suddenly that's changed. They were all like much smaller, sub $500 million sort of entities, um, just two or three men working or women working in them. And I think the primary driver, like I said, it was not to uh, create better returns or, you know, uh, create amazing alphas or anything. Like it was it was all about just trying to retain control. They wanted to understand where and what their money was going into more than anything else. And 
we kind of just rode on that wave. And 14 years later today, 95% of our client base is single family offices, which mm. are entities that look after the interest of one family. Uh, and the remaining is a mixture of multifamily offices, which is a combination of, you know, where siblings or family members tend to set up family offices together to save costs. So that was a primary driver from what I remember. I don't know if, Paul, you had any other yeah, memories I mean, of this. My background was, you know, uh, slightly unique into falling into sort of essentially financial services recruitment. Um, I kept, mine was more from a sporting background. I played football as in uh, what, what the Brits, I know, not, not Aussie football, <laughs> but uh, Brits, the soccer. Uh, so played that. Didn't quite make the grade. Ended up going to university. Thought, well, I want a career in sports. Fell into doing, uh, you know, working in sort of the, the health industry and then into a football agency, you know, dealing with, you know, Premier League players, etc. And then took a bit of a, a, a move, a, a U-turn into uh, recruitment, met someone who ran a business. You know, there was a lot of, you know, crossover skills that from dealing with, you know, high level sports people to you know the the competitive edge of sort of I guess sales and sort of fell into that so it wasn't your traditional route into into the world of recruitment and yeah I echo what Ty said why we set the business up you know I think when we started we were approached by a single family office that wanted to hire a wealth manager uh, to run their business they suddenly realized when we spoke to them that actually it wasn't a wealth manager they needed it was actually a trust lawyer because mm. the patriarch was in their late 90s obviously nature was going to take course at some point and they had all these different you know structures that were set up and we're going to need someone to oversee that so we realized actually these guys don't really know what they need all the time so mm. they had some real there's some real big problems that need solving um so we thought let's invest in this they referred to another family and it sort of snowballed and, and, and it went from there basically yeah, i think the funny thing i want to mention is that i mean recruiting is always an accidental career I don't think anyone ever plans <laughs> to become a recruiter. It's like you just end up doing this as a stopgap job and you you realize, okay, you can make some money and you end up staying there. And that's how, that's how I think both of us ended up being. I don't think anyone planned to become a recruiter. But then once you carved out a niche, you just realize, okay, it's a great space and that kind of thing. Yeah, look, I think it's two really interesting skill sets and background that you both bring to the table and interesting that, that I guess the turning point was post the global financial crisis. I mean, I started my career just at the pointy end of the GFC. So feedback from clients, investing of, you know, having a horrible experience through that time and really the distrust, all the questions that started to be asked of these major institutions post that. As you said, there can be a lot of trust placed in big organizations and these private banks, these wealth managers, frankly, investing in product that the average sophisticated investor, family office, you know, successful family don't necessarily understand. And it's always interesting that just because you've been hugely successful in business, that doesn't necessarily translate to the intricacies of financial services and markets. So completely appreciate that environment and how things have evolved. Also on the call, you know, we have Pierre. So Pierre might be worth you just jumping in with a bit of background on your career and how you fit within Agrius as well. Definitely with pleasure. Um, I'm a bit of an accident myself. So actually, <laughs> I'm not sure if that point I have know that, but I studied philosophy in, in France before, you know, I realized I was probably not meant to be a teacher or even a researcher in that field. And uh, I had a little nudge from my dad, I got to say. Uh, who encouraged me to do a business school, right? And uh, I even happened to do an 18-month internship in investment banking uh, during the financial crisis. 
So that was quite intense, quite rich, but I also realized this is not meant for me. And uh, so I'm, you know, I'm more of a relationship type of person anyway. Mm. So uh, recruitment was a natural choice. You know, it's a combination of uh, sales, uh, relationship and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So that's what I've been doing for 15 years now. Um, I've always been specializing in the financial services industry, uh, starting in France, been to a bit everywhere uh, in Belgium, in Thailand, where I met my wife, who is Singaporean. So that's why I'm now based in, uh, uh, based, uh, based in, uh, in, in Singapore. And uh, mm. actually, since I'm in Asia, I've been really specializing in the wealth management space. So mm-hmm. starting with the traditional private banking industry, like, like, like Paul and Tayard. But I, I started looking at the family office space actually during COVID um, because I think it was basically around the time where Singapore came up with you know, a very attractive scheme for families mm. around tax and, and, and immigration. But the problem I had at the time as a recruiter was, you know, I simply didn't have access to those families, uh, nor to the, uh, the ecosystem. So a lot of uh, the, the relationship in Asia is held by the lawyers, the big four, the private mm. banks, or even the family office like yourself. Uh, and, and although I had the private banking angle, I didn't have the rest that is very, very important in our space. Mm. And, and, and I think we all know that we also cannot really pick up our phone uh, like a mean and nasty recruiter to call, mm-hmm. call a patriarch or a matriarch and ask for a meeting. So you know, I, I really had an issue here and I was trying to find a solution when I just chanced upon Paul and Tayyab's content on LinkedIn. And what I, what I really liked was the actually the, the positioning mm. where we, we are not, you know, don't get me wrong, we are recruiters, but we are not recruiters, but rather advisors mm. to family office that needs help when it comes to structuring their families in terms of human capital considerations. And that includes, of course, recruiting, but also compensation consulting, which which is another part of, of Paul and Tayyab's business. So I really loved the idea. It was very different from traditional and uh, I won't say boring, but, you know, <laughs> uh, different, very different from the traditional wealth management uh, universe, obviously. And since we had a lot of things going on in Singapore, I think that made a lot of sense for us to open an office there, which we did November last year. You know, Singapore has been trying to position themselves as a hub in Asia. We, we, everybody heard of that outside of Singapore. But I think, you know, you, you, you obviously have all the countries that are relevant for families in Asia when mm. they want to set up. It can be Singapore, it can be Hong Kong, which is a little bit less attractive for, you know, political concerns. But we also have Dubai and, and of course we have Australia. You know, that, that, that's why we are here today also to, to, to discuss, right? But, mm. uh, Actually, for the little story, we, we had the chance to do our latest compensation benchmark with uh, KPMG. And, and they did play a very important role for us in Australia in terms of gathering a lot of valuable data for, for more than 60 families, you know. And I think we had the, the help also a lot from, from the table club. And, and we did realize that there's also a lot of potential in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so you also, of course, have the, the well-established uh, institutionalized families, household name, the Fairfax, the Marios of the world that everybody knows. But I think we were having this discussion with you the other day <laughs> about Brisbane. We mm. don't even know that, but we have a lot of wealth, new wealth being created in Brisbane, very successful mm. entrepreneurs that have their, um, uh, sometimes family offices still embedded in the operating business, but thinking of setting up their own uh, family office structure. 
So all of that, you know, is very interesting for us. Mm. I think what is also very important for us and a good sign is families established on new ones are actually ready to hire a real professional. And we can cover that later. Plus people outside of the family circle that can properly manage uh, the family interests, right? So in our interpretation, it's, a, it's, a, it's also a good sign of a market that is getting a little bit more mature. Um, so that's why we decided to start covering Australia from Singapore. And I mm. think that's, uh, that's why we are here today. And thanks for having us on the, on your podcast, because we obviously would like to hear a little bit more from, from you and your knowledge on how to best cover that space. So, yeah. Yeah, and no, I appreciate it. And super interesting hearing the experience, obviously, in family office resourcing from different markets, because Australia is a pretty young country in terms of its wealth, often first generation as opposed to second generation, third generation, and even kind of relating, I guess, my timeline, which in the industry probably fits quite nicely with Agrius, obviously starting my career in the pointy end of the global financial crisis, working across the largest retail bank in the country, then the largest Australian investment bank in the country, then my colleagues, UBS, and then we all kind of met at Morgan Stanley. I think it's interesting using maybe the GFC as a point of context because, you know, kind of one of, of two things really happened. I think the institutions that did solidify their reputation in the global financial crisis, there was attention and big demand for those that were perhaps managing risk better than others in the financial crisis or perhaps completely changed and restructured their business. So at the other end of it, they recapitalize or come out as a completely different business. And, you know, I guess the other option, as you said, is family offices or wealthy individuals were burned or had a poor experience and, you know, wanted that personalization, at least, I guess, in the Australian market, at that point in time, there wasn't really the the resources, the infrastructure to support family offices from moving away from major banks or private banks or the local investment banks that obviously had an offshore presence but operated here. But that's completely changed over the last 10, 15, not quite 20 years, but getting close to it, where you know now there is a legitimate ability, a genuine ability to build a family office and have the same institutional quality and access as a Morgan Stanley, a Goldman Sachs, a UBS, these household names that we all know. I think as you touched on, Tayab, that personalization piece is key. I mean, even we founded our business three and a half years ago. So in the middle of COVID, but even though, you know, ABN's only three and a half years old, in some cases, relationships have lasted 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. So we didn't really feel like we were establishing a new business, just a different way of doing things. And what I imagine is relevant from a resourcing and recruitment standpoint, when we started the business, our bread and butter, all we focused on was really the investment management piece. Because, you know, that's what we did for clients previously. And around that, you know, you would have structuring advice, tax advice, legal advice. But what we've seen, you know, even in this short period since establishing our business and really trying to solve the needs of clients being as receptive and responsive to that as possible, I think the inflexibility of traditional banking, I mean, bigger isn't necessarily better. As you go down that resourcing role and listen to what each family needs. I mean, the scope of services and the individual roles end up getting 
bigger and bigger and bigger. It's almost a, a bit of a rabbit hole, which for us, we can scale up or down to service the needs of each family. But I'd be interested to hear your experience that these family offices that you've serviced overseas, that are perhaps younger, first generation, second generation, they probably start with one or two key highs. And I imagine in six months, in 12 months, in 18 months, all of a sudden realize we're actually going to need quite a few more strategic highs given the uniqueness of our family, what we need to adequately service them. So I'd be interested to hear more so on the younger family offices that you look after. I mean, how do you find that process and how does it kind of evolve over the years that you you know each family? I mean, um, I think the best advice we usually give startup sort of situations or any uh, family offices in its early stages of its life cycle is keep it simple. You want to only internalize various functions as you start feeling comfortable and get your ground on the feet. Some of the functions that they internalize can be very natural. So let me give you an example. So uh, a family that's made their wealth from the financial services, especially within the investment world. So someone who's run a hedge fund, who's had an exit or a private equity firm and who's had an exit, it's natural for them to internalize investments before anything else, because that's what they made their wealth in. So they know that sort of stuff, but that they might outsource legal, they might outsource um, you know, uh, finance even uh, and everything else like that uh, and and consolidate with that one builder profile. So usually the, they will try and hire someone in that case who's made their wealth in financial services. They'd hire someone like a CIO mm. who's done, a, who's worked for another family office who understands a broad spectrum of different asset class of investments. So not that they would internalize all aspects of investing, but the, the, essentially the asset allocation strategy, the manager selection strategy might be done internally, but they, they may still use external managers and uh, banks for, for various services. But a lot of it might be uh, uh, still outsourced, but uh, they'll keep the key decision making in house. And then once they evolve and as they grow older, I think they just start internalizing when they start feeling comfortable. And we've had tons of cases like this where family offices have evolved during the 14 years that we've been working with. Pretty much everything used to be outsourced. Mm. And today, in some cases, they are full in-house teams of investment people. And it's it's almost like comparable to an institutional sort of a setup. Mm. So that's that's what we've seen generally. That's interesting. I mean, I guess from my perspective with the few family offices that you know, we look after, I mean, true family offices, there's a few investors that we still group or treat like family offices, but don't necessarily meet the traditional definition of the word. Those that we look after, I mean, they are all successful business owners. They've built a great business. Comes a point in time where they traditionally want to transition or diversify outside of that business. And within every business, or at least those that we come across, you know, you normally have key people, you know, management staff at the top of that. So you've got your internal accountant or CFO, you've got your bookkeeper, you've got key management personnel or your HR chief of people, if you like. You've got matriarch or patriarch at the top of that. And that tends to give a good grounding for the family office or family business external to the operating assets that created the wealth thereafter. But those people don't necessarily have the right investment qualification, background and resources to run a portfolio that meets the family's needs. They don't have necessarily the relationships with 
large custodians, investment platforms, asset managers, their internal accountant might be great at managing company finances. But when you go down to, I guess, the individual family level, then maybe you need to bring in additional resources there. So I think it's certainly interesting that, you know, on one hand, it's a great place or basis to start for building out a business outside of the business, if you like. But it must be, in our experience, incredibly hard to find not just those with the right skill set, but I think most importantly, those that are a cultural fit for the family. So how do you measure culture and hiring for a family is very different for hiring for career? That's a really important piece to acknowledge. And I'd love to hear how you guys solve for that. Mm, I mean, that, that is... Um... That, I mean, that is exactly the fundamental, you know, driving force of our business, I think. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Ryan. I think that, you know, the reality is if you're hiring for an accountant or an investment analyst, you know, main, you know, if you're if you're hiring in London, if you're hiring in Sydney, you know, there are a huge pool of, of talent of these types of people, but they're not all going to be right for a family office. Um, and we always say, obviously, the biggest part of getting a family office hire right is cultural fit. Um, and when we talk about that, it's just because of a number of the points that you mentioned. So, you know, in, you're in a small team, so you might come in as CIO. So you're, you're running the investment decisions, but you also have responsibilities for operational decisions. So if it's a new family, that might mean sourcing a new office space, you know, agreeing, you know, uh, you know, legal structures, you know, it might mean, you know, basic, um, you know, administrative tasks. It may mean, you know, there's such a wide variety of responsibilities that go beyond that room. So it's, you know, that's someone who's a problem solver, someone who hasn't got a huge ego and is, not, is only prepared to do what they want. Mm. And then you've got the the factors you need to contend with that obviously you're going to be slotted into what is essentially a family structure. So you need to be able to work within that. And that could be the culture of that family, you know, where, you know, what, what's, what, what they believe, what their values are. Um, so they all need to be. So we talk about, you know, you've got IQ and then you've got EQ. So mm. emotional intelligence is very you know, important because, you know, you may have come from a big bank, Goldman's, for example, where you've got clear lines of authority. Uh, whereas here you're dealing with maybe the matriarch, but also the patriarch and then, you know, the cousin and, the, you know, the children. And then you've got all these different dynamics. So there's such a complex um, problem to solve. And again, I hence, I guess that's probably why we have been successful is because we understand that. Um, and, you know, there are there is science behind it. So, you know, I'm, I'm tired can probably give you a bit more overview into this, talking about how we look at the different types of cultures within organizations and then the different types of personalities. We use that as a framework. But the, the, the reality is we it's all through our questioning. So we make sure that we understand what the values and purpose are of that family that we're working with. And sometimes they're not always fully sure at the beginning. So it takes a few, you know, a bit of discovery from their point of view. Once we've gone that, then we can go out and, and find the right person. And, and, and just to give you an example of that, we had a, a family many, many years ago where, you know, the, the patriarch or the main person running the family office wanted to hire a fairly senior person in the role and wanted another person like them. That is how they described it at the beginning. And this guy was, you know, a type A personality, very driven, it was his way or the highway, um, a very good and professional guy. So we obviously quite soon on realized that actually if we bring another one, like another person like mm. him, 
there's going to be some clashes here. This this is probably not going to work. And we obviously we invest we we investigated this and discussed it further. And, they, and, and he also realised that well, actually, yeah, that's the, that's that's probably not going to work. And not that he needed a passive person. He wanted someone that was going to challenge them. But if they challenged him, he'd have back back up the reason why they're challenging and give if evidence. And if that made sense, they'd move forwards. But if they if he if he still felt like that was the decision then the person had to take that on board and move on. And that wouldn't be right for someone. So that was just a, a pure understanding of the, the culture and the personality that would work in that particular role, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's really interesting. And uh, I'm just reflecting on the intro and you know your background, Paul, and if you think about obviously starting out, you envisioned yourself you know, working in obviously sports recruitment. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think in you know a lot of ways, family office, from a recruitment side, I mean, you are building or recruiting for almost like a high performance team, right? And every role has a dedicated skill set. So just like you call it football, we call it soccer. But um, yeah, you know, spot on. Yeah, yeah. So you, you may have your forwards, your attackers, your defenders, everyone plays a different role. But I think it's often overlooked that your team also needs to understand what each member's role is and how the pieces fit together. Because if you get defenders starting to play attack, then leaves the family vulnerable. So I think that context in that narrative is very relatable. And you've got high-performing sports team when you bring in egos and, I don't know, the, the David Beckham type personality doesn't want to share the ball with somebody else, then that's not necessarily the best result either. So I think that personality fit, but also finding the right mix of people that can perform each role very well, but also ensure that there's that cohesion amongst the team is critical. I think that's exactly, I think that's a really good point. And funny enough, uh, it was mentioned the other day, one of your your fellow countrymen, the, the new manager of Spurs mentioned exactly this about two two days ago, that, you know, you, a team made up of 11 of the world's best players mm. is unlikely to be as good as, you know, a team that's maybe got a, a number of stars. And it's mm. similar in the family office. You, you know, need to be aware of the different, you know, personalities, different people that are going to work, how that's going to, you know, work with the the family, the, the the main family. So yeah, I think there is some definitely some crossover there. Yeah, and the only thing I'd add to that is, you know, it's it's not a uh, working enough. This is what people don't understand, especially in a nascent or an infant market like Australia. I think mm. because uh, you know people think that wow, I'd like to go and work for a family office. But we say that even you, they might have the skill set to do the job, but I don't think it's right for everybody. They got to understand that small team mentality, the ability to wear multiple hats, and you're not siloed in the role like a corporate environment you know you might have to look after one thing one day and do something else the next minute you mm. know and so a job in a family office is definitely not for everybody and that's the value that we bring to the table because we try and assess if they would be right for that family office essentially yeah i agree and where do you think people families go wrong because i mean I've, I've seen instances for example i mean sometimes it works but most of the time this doesn't you know, where you've got the matriarch, patriarch, they have their liquidity event. And then a key part of their decision is, well, who do I trust? Who can I bring internal that I know has my best interests at heart? Secondary to that is obviously the skill set. But often, you know, the person that will be brought in could be a family friend, could be, you know, a member of the family, which you know the trust 
is there, but it also creates, I think, a lot of vulnerabilities where you don't have the same separation or segregation as bringing in a dedicated expert that still has that, you know, the best interest in mind. But where do families typically go wrong and what are the common mistakes that you see in that thought process? I mean, we, I personally, I mean, I think we as a firm don't really advise that strategy of hiring someone you, you've just known. Uh, and there's a reason for that. We've seen, and that's a natural way for human beings to behave that way because they were, uh, you know, they've run, um, for example, if you worked for this principal in, in, in his operating business, you've been phenomenally successful. You'll be the first point of call when he wants to set up because he's trusted you. And, and that's natural. <clears throat> and we don't blame that. But I think in a family office, it doesn't always work. And what happens is they tend to not work after some time because they're not able to deliver on what they get. Because this is a very specialist set of skills that's needed now. You're trying to do something totally different from what you were doing. What we advise family officers, you've got to professionalize the entity. You've got to treat it like just like any other company. So if you're going to create a new company, you would hire the best marketing person for the marketing division, the best salesperson for the sales division and finance person for the finance. Mm. And just treat it like that. You don't need to have trust. I know I'm saying something controversial. You don't need to trust them with everything because it's all based on a governance structure Mm. and framework, Mm. just like in a corporate environment. Trust is something that takes time to build and naturally you can have someone that you trust to oversee all of this but to give them a specialization that they've not specialized in you know i think mm-hmm. that's where things can go wrong because i have seen instances of how not to set up a family office where principals who have run FTSE listed public listed companies who have been phenomenally successful but the family office is managed by their best friend's son mm-hmm. I mean, hold on a second What's his background again? Uh, mm. Yeah, he's just recently graduated from uh, LSE. Okay, so does that make him a qualified fund manager for a billion dollars portfolio? And as I say, it just really surprised that these things are very common. Mm. Uh, but we understand the emotion behind it. It comes from a place of trust. But I think you don't need to depend too much on trust. You can have the right governance frameworks, have the processes in place so that you don't have to trust anyone with too much of this checks and balances in place. But you hire the right professionals come from a similar environment who's worked in a family office or a small team mentality and that is critical it's just just going to add on to that the only other thing i'd add is that we found is that again i think i refer you know referred to this earlier is that i think understanding the purpose can really and this is where some families don't they get it wrong and what i mean by that is we had an example of a family that uh hired uh you know essentially a cio investment manager uh, and that he lost a considerable amount of money over a couple of year period. And we came in and we sort of looked at it and we said, well, you know, he was taking extreme risks, this guy. He was looking at, you know, he was looking at trying to get returns of 20% in a market that was paying, you know, around about 5 to 8%. Um, what was the reason for that? You know, we are, we asked the family. I said, you obviously, and he was like, what's your perp? What's, what's your lot? You know, what do you want to uh, have as a goals in life? I said, well, you know, they were pretty reserved. Like, well, we, you know, we want to be able to have a few family uh, holidays a few times a year. <laughs> we want to, you know, have, be able to invest in the future for our kids. And, but so there was no, so the, the actual, so what the reason he was taking that huge risk, what, what, what's the point of that? And actually it wasn't a discussion. And it's amazing to think <clears> that they haven't got these, you know, investment policy statements set up or, you know, whatever it may be that actually 
they, like Ty said, they come from a totally another world of, of selling. This is, you know, an operational business that has nothing to do with investments. Uh, and then if, if they'd got that right at the beginning, that would have driven the type of person they hired as well. So maybe they didn't need to get someone who wanted to take this huge growth and huge risk. They could have got someone else that was a, more conservative. And I mean, I guess this falls back into your world when you're talking to clients that come on board for you, you're, you're understanding risk. It's the same here with mm. the types of people you hire. What sort of people are going to be, what sort of risks are they going to be taking? Yeah, I think that's totally true. And to Tayab's point around governance, it's frustrating how much governance can be overlooked. And I think if you think about the founders starting their business that they ultimately sold for hundreds of millions of dollars, when they started, I guess it was trial and error, right? So they're prepared to take risks. They're prepared to try new things. You know, there's some surprises along the way. There's some losses and hard lessons learned. But when you're creating a family office, it shouldn't be treated as a startup because it's the end of that journey. It's the end of that really big wealth creation piece, which for the first generation, you only really, at least most of the time, and unless you're an Elon Musk or something, I mean, you get one go of doing that and you spend your whole life building that that asset. So to then start again with a family office and the proceeds and think, well, hey, I've got to start up again and we'll figure this out as we go. It's the reverse approach. You need to think about almost the starting place is, well, we're a mature business. This is just taking the family's interest in a different direction. Get that governance in place. Get that advisory board in place. I mean, if matriarch, patriarch, are 60, 70, 80, potentially not in a position where they can be active advisors, then who are those active advisors? Who's going to look after the interests of the next generation if they've graduated from LSE or another prestigious university, but they haven't learned hard lessons, they haven't founded a business? So what does that advisory board look like? And what is that governance framework? What is the investment policy or the different buckets of, of assets? How should they be invested? What are the outcomes that need to be achieved? And frankly, I think from an Australian standpoint, predominantly we're we're talking about first generation and potentially now starting to see a bit more of second generation, that wealth transfer. There hasn't been a lot of that. You know, you go to obviously your big four consulting firms in Australia and they're not used to having the same conversations as the equivalent businesses in the US, in Europe, in more mature markets, because frankly, they haven't been asked before. So I think from an Australian standpoint, advisors who understand what best practice looks like, it's critical to find those firms. And it doesn't need to be a wealth manager like us. If you do find it with an accountant or you do find it with a lawyer or whoever that advisor is, I mean, getting the governance structure right first, then the management team, and then obviously learning the highs that you need to make to take that new entity in whatever direction that the family needs, I think you're absolutely right. It's so crucial. Mm. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Ryan, you know, the, the, just about this whole governance piece, because though we're recruiters, we do a lot of best practice advisory work and, you know, because we deal with a lot of, I hate to use the word startup, but when I say startup, what I'm referring to is just they've had a liquidity event and they're trying to cr- mm. professionalize and create a family office. And, so we did, we did this huge compensation survey with that Pierre was referring to earlier on mm. KPMG, and I'm sure you might have come across it. 650 family offices or nearby that 
was surveyed globally. And our, we had an, a section of questions around governance. Now I'm going to give you a worrying number here. 40% of families that make investments from that 650, which is a large number, and this, mm. this should never be that high. 40% don't have any form of formalized governance structure, including an investment committee. Mm. So basically wow. what that tells me is just too much centralization of power in the hands of few. So what that means is you spent decades, like you re referred to earlier on, decades building generational wealth. Now you thought, okay, I'm going to try and diversify. I'm going to create a family office to try and invest into different things. And I've hired this person and he might rightly be the best person for the job, mm. but still you have to have a governance process where it's not too much centralization of power internally. Mm. There's got to be a checks and balance. There's got to be an IC in place, investment committee, where there's a checks and balance, there's a voting process, you know, and the family members or the decision makers can be on that pro, uh, on that board. There needs to be an IPS, an investment policy statement that the family kind of defines and the goals and objectives and everything like that. And based on those parameters, he needs to be able to make a decision because that's mm. also going to help you assess his performance because he knows what is to be achieved and what is classed as success. Because how do you know if you're successful mm. you know are you just trying to achieve i don't know uh, uh like market benchmarks are you trying to beat the benchmark whatever it is that you're trying to do i think it needs to be professionalized it needs to have clear definitions and that's what is needed and um you know and family offices we we, we almost advise them to do this on day one even if you're a four-man team Mm. Do this on day one, as opposed to waiting to be a much bigger entity, because so that you're adapting the right practices from day one. I think and that's absolutely critical. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on the benchmarking reports, that's a question. So I'm, I'm going to have for you, Pierre, in just a moment. As a bit of a segue, you mentioned a family or a client that you looked after for quite some time, you know, many, many years ago. And you obviously had CIO who was making high risk investment decisions that potentially the family, frankly, did need that risk appetite. And I think another thing we come Ooh. across is if you hire a CIO or whoever the trusted person is or who the family feels is the right person, also need to be mindful of, well, what, what's their kind of experience and their biases within financial services? I mean, as one example, a family we had come across hired a CIO, the background is in trading derivatives and commodity product or options basically overseas. And basically most of his career was focused or limited to that. So commodities, options, derivatives type trading. Now, when you take that background, that bias, that skill set and apply it to a family office, what do you think the investments are? You know, mm -hmm. they're not the balanced, diversified portfolio that the family really should have. It's not the long-term intergenerational investment decisions. It's short-term trading focused, a lot of options, a lot of commodities. That's totally against what, you know, what a family office is typically set up for. And, and, and I don't think by any means that's ill-intended or not trying to seek outcomes in the best interest of the family. But if that's the only skill set you have as an investment professional, then naturally that's going to create a bias in your decision-making because you're going to stick with what you know. But um, with that said, I would be really interested to hear from you, Pierre, you know, the benchmarking that you do, I think Agrius and KPMG together are really thought leaders in this 
regard globally. There's not really anyone else that I've seen that does it to the extent or surveys the extent of families that you do. How important is benchmarking for family officers? And, you know, in terms of deciding on what appropriate remuneration structure and incentives are, I mean, that's important for any business, but I guess particularly when you've got the privacy and the the dependence of families on retaining long-term staff, how do you guys use it and how do you determine what appropriate incentive and remuneration packages are? Well, I think first we have got 15 years of data in that space, mm. right? So mainly in Europe and, and in the US, obviously, which are more macho market, and that's where point I have started the business anyways. So when it comes to compensation, we just have access to all those data, and it's very easy for us to benchmark families against other families based on the size, uh, the mm. purpose, what they are trying to to achieve and the investment philosophy of the company, right? Um, so that, in a sense, is, is is kind of easy for us in this part of the world. Whenever we have a family that is asking advice when it comes to hiring a CIO or in an investment uh, professional across all levels of seniority, mm. uh, actually, right? So, and the, the advice we give them is basically they will get what they pay for. And actually, they should pay for what they are expecting. So if I compare with what's happening in Asia, it's very interesting. We had an event uh, a few months ago with UBS where we had the CIO, CEO of uh, Singaporean family offices that was telling uh, the audience that uh, based on what you are expecting, because, you know, Singapore is a bit like Asia and expectations are very high. Mm. So it's not, you know, it's not crazy to see some principal expecting 15 or 20% returns. And so what was the CIO advising was basically, if you expect this kind of return, then you have to benchmark yourself against top portfolio managers that are working for, you know, BlackRock and Fidelity and mm. all these kind of organization, right? So you have two types of benchmark. I would say more mature markets, you can benchmark yourself against similar mm. families. But when it comes to Asia or even Australia, and I'm happy to hear your views about that, you can also benchmark yourself mm. against established organization. So it, it, it's it's critical because if you want to attract the best talent, you know, you 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 have to pay uh, in that sense, especially if you want to not only protect your wealth, mm. but grow your wealth all the time. So it, it's key, not only for the family, but it's also very important for the talents because they need to know uh, where and who they are going to work for, right? Um, I see and I have many discussions in Singapore where uh, portfolio managers are complaining because they realized after they have joined the organization mm. that uh, the performance bonus is not in line with what they, they they used to have in their previous organization. You know, it's usually based on a formula, for example. Mm. But this was not discussed initially with the family or even the principal or the CIO if the CIO is the gatekeeper um, of the organization, right? So make it uh, to summarize a little bit, I think you should definitely benchmark yourself against either a family of similar size. Mm. If that's not possible, if it comes to investment professional, you should definitely benchmark yourself against a well-established financial organization. That's a great summary. Thanks, Pierre. I think, yeah, I mean, certainly from an Australian standpoint, you mentioned, you know, you'd be interested in, I guess, the way that some of the founders or the patriarchs, you know, the family think about hiring. And and I remember we had a conversation. So a family we work with, they are 
a true family office. They do have significant size, but they thought, well, okay, why don't we internalize Craig, Tim and Ryan? Why don't we try and hire them? They can work exclusively for us and we'll pay them a salary to do so. But of course, not to talk out of terms here, but salary versus running a business that's predominantly an asset under management type fee where you do have scale. I mean, the top advisors, they earn a reasonable living is probably the, mm. the conservative way to, to put it. And that number can be pretty shocking if you're used to paying a salaried employee, whether it's an accountant or an executive for your business. But what we found, because we want to work with family offices and really, you know, one of the, the big drivers for family offices is if you can internalize the function or if you can pay a fixed cost then you get economies of scale where relative to your overall funds under management, the operational costs end up being relatively small versus outsourcing. So we totally get that. And what we found is above a certain size, call it above $50 million, really the custody model or the assets under management type fee arrangement doesn't work because at 50 million plus, you can begin to potentially start internalizing some functions and at, at 100 or 200 million plus, then maybe a, a little bit more. So what we thought is instead of the custody model, we will consult to families where you form part of their investment committee, you meet with them, say, on a quarterly basis, you send them deal flow, you help them evaluate other investment opportunities that they come across independent of us and you pay a fixed cost for that just like a professional service so you're still mm -hmm. getting the benefit of our advice at a fixed cost and get that economies of scale but you're also getting the benefit where we don't need you to transfer your assets to us and have it managed in a way that obviously aligns with the model and the opportunities that we think make the most sense. You've got that flexibility, but it's much more of a consulting, you know, advisor role. Whereas I think when we look around the industry, at least in Australia, there's actually not many advice groups doing that. They still want your major private banks. They still want to custodize your assets. They still want to be the trade team. They want to report on it. If you've got money with a different advisor, why don't you transfer it to us and we'll give you a discount? But mm. the reality is you can have different advisors that cater to different mandates and different needs. And if you're willing to have that more independent advisor role, then you're removing the conflict and giving them what they want. So by doing that, we found for that particular demographic of our clients they're a lot more receptive to it. And even if they come to us with an opportunity that's really you know, completely out of our wheelhouse, if they've got an interest in property development, under the custody model, we obviously wouldn't receive any incentive for that. But outside of the custody model, we've come across some of the largest developers in the country or have a relationship with them. We know some of the leading architects in the country who have their own projects that they're already kind of moving in the development path and if they've got financial backing can execute on them. We have contacts in feasibility, procurement with real estate agents. And I guess similar to you guys, you know, ultimately then the focus becomes how do we best solve for the problem that the family is bringing us as opposed to, well, you can only operate in this square box, this model that we've set for you. So, mm. you know, it, it's interesting how much freedom taking that independent 
type approach can change the relationship with the family and, and where you end up. Yeah. So that's why that's why there's a lot of space for people like you, right? And in, in, in a growing market like Australia. And that's why we because we don't and I know this might sound counterproductive to what we do, but we don't think everyone should be setting up a family office because mm. there's a trend of people who think, oh, you know what, I can try and do this and, you know, I'm worth 200 million because they're in for a real shock when mm. they realize what investment professionals cost when you're trying to internalize. Mm. I'm just giving investments as an example. Say they outsource investments to someone like you or anyone mm. else. Um, but the, even senior professionals who understand tax advice and the structure because you need someone internal uh, to challenge that advice or not necessarily just be difficult but essentially be able to question things and uh, be the eyes and ears for you and it adds up i mean uh, one figure that we always talk about is do you do you want to guess roughly what what it costs uh in terms of the people costs and um uh, compensation costs, hiring costs, and L tips and everything collectively for family offices of a large scale. I'm talking institutional mm. scale. It's it's around sixty percent mm. of the cost is allocated to that. Wow. And when I say that, people are so, so that way more than manager fees and everything like that. Of course, mm. you know economies of scale help and that kind of thing because mm. manager fees reduces as the numbers grow and all that stuff. But sixty percent of your cost is still around people costs. Mm. So and people need to realize that. So we say that unless you're a real of real scale and real, you have a real intent to internalize some some of these functions. Don't really go down that path of creating a single family office. You can mm. still have a fairly nice structure where working with various advisors like yourselves and things like that. But once you're of a certain scale and you really see a value in creating that internally, that's when mm. you need to do this. So that's the only point I wanted to make about that. But um, you know, I, I think that's why the people like you have a real opportunity because not everyone is of that scale you mm. know, because that's only the top 1%. The rest of them are below that scale generally. Yeah, look, I mean, you might obviously work to that scale. I mean, it doesn't mean that by the next generation, you're not at that scale where you can completely internalize it and I guess that for us we want what's best for the family so if you hit that scale and it's more efficient for you to run that that internal model we will help you do it I mean we'll refer the contacts that we know who may be open to potential hiring or we would draw on the experts like Agrius to help find those people I mean we're completely supportive and frankly we don't want to you know have billions of dollars of family office money under custody and be responsible for executing on individual trades. If you want to internalize that, great. You know, if we don't want the risk of obviously doing that. But if we can be a helpful advisor for problems that you're trying to solve, absolutely happy to do that. The number of times that I've connected with a family office professional or CIO and their answer is, well, look, we run everything in-house so we don't need you, Ryan. And then it's, well, you know, hey, why don't we just have a cup of coffee, learn a bit more about each other. And then you have a conversation and do you have a relationship with any other family officers? No, we don't talk to anybody. Everything's, you know, private and so on. It's like, well, wouldn't you have an interest in networking with like-minded families and hear about what mm. they're doing and what problems mm. they're solving for? Oh, yeah, I actually would. And, you know, what if there were three or four or five of those across Queensland that, you know, you could potentially – meet with, share ideas with, and then when you come across an opportunity you agree with, you invest collectively in that opportunity. Um, you can negotiate, you know, asset manager fees, and all of a sudden everybody has a much, much better outcome in terms of cost, in terms of opportunity, in terms of relationships, in terms of the resources you have available. It's not just your team, you know, you've got their team, 
the four other families' teams that you're sharing ideas off. I mean, it's not always the case that families are open to do that, but one of the, the big drivers is you want that privacy. You want to keep your wealth discreet, but doing it in the right environment where mm-hmm. other families want the same thing can be a productive yeah. thing. So it's a fascinating space. Mm-hmm. 100%, yeah, no, I Ryan. I mean, I, you know, uh, and what you just said there about, you know, have, it's so synonymous with all infant markets. If you remember 14 years ago when we started in London, people were almost too private for their own good. <laughs> but look at the world over here right now with allocations to private markets. Let's just talk about private mm. markets for a second. Um, uh, almost disproportionate uh, amount of assets allocated to private markets mm. or have been allocated recently. A lot of these guys love the idea of co-investments and investing with other families to leverage on fees, uh, just access to deals. And mm. How are you meant to do that without that access to other mm. families? And you know, if you're so private, so confident, you know, mm. that doesn't mean you need to share who you are and everything, but you need to be open to the idea of networking and meeting like-minded mm. families. And you know, you are offering real value by doing that because it's just a case of time before the families there evolve into that kind of an environment and where they realize the value in doing that you know and it's going to get selective and selective and you you, hopefully there'll be a lot of other businesses that's going to try and offer that kind of a thing but i think the you have an early uh starter advantage in that you know because i we still think it's in its nascent stages and you're already doing that kind of stuff so Mm. it'd be great to see that yeah, no, thank you. And I guess obviously with, with Agrius moving into solving for the new market, it's not a mature market like some of the others that you serve. What are the questions that you all have in terms of, I guess, the Australian family office space, what the needs are, what dynamics are, what would be useful to you guys to know to start solving for that need? I, I, I mean, I guess... Well, I mean, we've been sort of obviously doing our research and a lot of what we do is based upon, you know, we started our US business because a number of years, our, our website traffic, you know, it was 50% of the website was coming from the US. We thought, okay, well, this is an obvious move. Uh, we, when again, we started to see, surprisingly, we kept seeing some demands and co- comments from Australia. And okay, well, this is a bit strange. And, uh, you know, and then we did the report and like Pierre said, I think we had 60 families. <laughs> complete the, the the report and there, there's actually a specific report on that we're like okay wow that's uh mm-hmm. we didn't realize they're so fast so i guess for us it'd be good to from your perspective and we've i think we've had these conversations but in the uk pretty much 80 percent of the family offices are in london uh you get you know you get scatterings where they you know the family have decided to move into somerset because they've got a huge house there and they've then decided to bolt on a family office where they got two or three people or they've decided to move to Scotland and they've just, you know, but mm. the majority are in, in London. It'd be good to know where, where is where are the, the hubs for family offices in Australia, would you say? It's a good question. I mean, really, a lot of wealth in Australia has been created, at least older generation from property. So mm. Sydney and Melbourne, families that bought the right property, you know, prices there have mm. really eastern suburbs of Sydney, on the harbour, on the water, you know, you're paying tens of millions of dollars, if not materially more than that. If you're a business that had commercial property as part of obviously that business or connected to it, and that was bought, you know, and and a portfolio built over the years to try and service your business. If you own large commercial property assets and built a portfolio over the last 50 years, clearly you get to a certain size and point where you've got a huge property portfolio. So I think a lot of it's property orientated, particularly in Victoria 
and Sydney. I mean, I'm Brisbane based and what excites me about Brisbane, the opportunities I see here, it's less property orientated and more successful businesses that are really kicking goals, going from startups to multi-billion dollar companies or sold for hundreds of millions of dollars without necessarily requiring investor capital, private capital. You know, they've done it basically bootstrapped and independently over a decade or less, which I think that's incredibly exciting because the pace of wealth creation in, that I'm seeing in Brisbane is is really quite phenomenal. I mean, wealth from property takes decades, multiple decades to really accumulate to, to size and scale. And given where property prices are today, it's very hard, I think, for, you know, you know, for, for a young family to, to build a property portfolio to the same scale as the last 50, 60 years, whereas solving new technology, new applications, whether it's across health or construction or anything. I mean, this this whole appification now has created significant opportunity and it's only going to get faster. I mean, now you've got artificial intelligence and robotics, automation, just the rate of change and the scale you can achieve as a founder in, in these industries is phenomenal. So I think we're in an interesting turning point in Australia where wealth is being created at a enormous pace. It's not, mm. I would term it the less boring old style of wealth, which is property orientated. <laughs> um, it's, yep. it's founders really having a go and doing something special. And then post that, I guess it's the next generation coming through and deciding what they're going to do with it. Even, I guess, outside of those comments, it's still, I guess, property orientated, but as Australia, we've, we've got a good reputation in mining resources as well as agriculture. So definitely wealth focused around those. Again, I think it's older money. If you had immigrants that started farming the land 50, 60 years ago, maybe found the right parcel of land, planted some vineyards, now have substantial wineries and export that around the world. So it's, look, I, I think you've got a lot of old industry in there, but equally outside of Sydney and Victoria, you're starting, or New South Wales, Victoria, you're starting to see innovation outside of those states. So it's mm. probably a long way of answering your question, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's great. And I think, I mean, Pierre's helping some families at the moment recruit mm. um, in, in Australia. And one thing we found, it'd be interesting because it's fairly new, is that when we first started in the UK, um, it wasn't seen as an attractive place for family office before, sorry, for em- mm. employees to mm. go and work in. It was often seen as a the final part of your career and you'd, mm. you'd be the, the banker that moved over that helped the client for 20 years and you'd carry on running that. And it was very Dead much seen, exactly, yeah. But now, mm-hmm. and it, particularly, it's seen as an, it's, it's very like, and lots of people want to work in it. So, mm. in, you know, but I think we're sort of seeing in, in the Australia, again, people probably don't know what it is. So if you've got an opportunity to work for a private equity firm in Sydney or a, mm. a new, you know, fund in Brisbane as a, as a, you know, graduate with five years experience, you probably, the, 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 the mindset is often to go down that route. So, mm. Are you are you seeing that? Is that what the market? You know, people are like, what's a family office? Am I going to go and work for you know this guy in his back of his in his, in his garage? You know, doing his investments. <laughs> That's not for me. I want a career. You know, I, I know. Obviously, what's your views? What do people view the market like in Australia? Yeah, it's interesting. I guess there's you know I'll answer it in two parts. So you know, in mm. terms of foreigners looking to move to Australia to obviously 
build a career? And then secondly, both locally and globally, are we seeing those with entry level, mid-market level, senior level end up working for, for family offices? So I guess answering in two parts, are we seeing interest from applicants offshore and applying for Australian financial services roles? I think absolutely. The one condition in a, a market that's not as tight in terms of labour is, you know, you do have a higher cost as an employer to bring workers from offshore. I mean, not just obviously providing relocation expenses if they're asking for that, but you need to sponsor them. There's a pathway to get a visa or citizenship that has costs. And if you're paying for the legals for that, that's an additional cost. So I think the only reluctance from our point of view, would we hire someone from London or you know the US or that's suitably qualified? Absolutely, because people are core to our business and getting the right people, you know, we're happy to make an investment. I think want to make sure that or if we sponsor them, if we pay for the costs, are they going to stay with us at least for a period of time or are they just using us to get in, get their expenses covered and then maybe go elsewhere, get some experience, go elsewhere. We'd like to think, yeah, I mean, all of our staff have, you know, long tenure with us, but we are still a young business. So that that's the first thing. I think absolutely there's demand uh, and especially now, you know, where in Australia you basically, your labour force, you've got record low unemployment, Maybe that'll change throughout the cycle, but it's very, very tight and hard to find the right staff. Companies, frankly, will take suitably qualified staff wherever they can get them. Does that change mm. if if Australia enters a recession next year and you start to see slack back in the economy potentially? Mm. But yeah, that's that's not necessarily playing out yet. The second part of that question, you know, family offices, we're certainly seeing more appetite for it, which I think isn't a function of demand for those types of roles. It's more, do you have a relationship with the family? Have you been in a career or a bank or a, a role where you've had exposure to them and you've already built a relationship? Because frankly, if they don't know you, they're probably not going to hire you unless it's a role that they're really struggling to fill. A relationship's key. And I guess the second point is, we're not a country that has the extent of family offices and second, third, fourth, fifth generation wealth as, you know, North America throughout Europe. So that's, it's still building momentum. But as I said, building that momentum at a really rapid pace, I'd say faster than some of the other markets I've seen. Mm. And I mm. think probably the third thing I've had, and Pierre and I had a, a discussion about this prior to this call, is really, you know, you've got attractive jurisdictions like Singapore. And families will set up, you know, basically a, a shell presence in countries like, you know, Singapore for, for all the favorable conditions. But then, you know, you turn up to the office and there's no one there. <laughs> there's a, <laughs> you know, there's a, a name on the door, uh, you know, maybe, maybe somebody behind reception and, you know, everybody mm -hmm. else is, you know, MIA. So where, <laughs> where are they actually based and why are they based there? I mean, we see a lot of professionals based in, Sydney, Australia, you know, they live by the harbour. It's a beautiful part of the world. And, you know, you've got great health, great health system, great education system, great infrastructure, beautiful beaches. So I think the world and what people want from a career has changed. They want lifestyle and not just work, work, work. UK for a career, I mean, London is obviously fast paced and, you know, some great opportunities there. But uh, I'd say the weather in Australia is 
much much better and nicer so just like just like the beaches the beaches are better up here right (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so uh, i guess it's um it's it's probably a longer answer than necessary but quite a few nuances Mm. there and i think people always want to live you know in a beautiful place and and we're lucky to have that Uh, it's very interesting brian because uh you know we were discussing about which location to choose when you're in Asia and you want to set up your family. You have Singapore, mm. Hong Kong, Dubai. And anyways, competition is good, by the way. Mm. Right? Mm. Stimulate um, ideas and encourage performances. Mm. Uh, but one of the challenges that we see indeed in Singapore is uh, we have a, a few constraints in terms of uh, immigration, mm. you know, which is a shame because one of the beauty of the family office space is the, the mm. global mobility right you want to have access to the best investment product and people all over the world mm. no matter where you are from right <laughs> and, and 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 unfortunately in singapore we lack a bit of that flexibility when it comes to immigration mm. and it's a bit of an issue when you know that it's an emerging industry and you are lacking talent in that space so i think there is a potentially a great opportunity for australia here mm. to really attract those talents that are uh, you know, as in the US or, uh, or London and are willing to relocate because, mm. you know, uh, I mean, Singapore has some stuff that you guys don't have, especially the tax incentives and I'm not going into too many details. But at the end of the day, when it comes to running your family, it's, it's all about people, mm. right? And that's the people who are going to help you protect your wealth and grow your wealth anyway. So if mm. you can, if you have more flexibility, that's what I understand mm. uh, from your perspective when it comes to immigration. I think there's definitely a, a big plus uh, for you guys to attract top talent yeah. uh, all over the world. And that's that's something we've done. Huh? I can let uh, Paul and Ty have. They've done. You know, they've relocated people from Hong Kong to Casablanca. And mm. I mean, we do have access to 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 this kind of network right? mm. so that's also something we can bring and hopefully share uh, with you guys when we further develop that market there yeah well, i mean i think that point's so important because you know families of this level of sophistication might have a presence in one country but it doesn't mean that's where all of their structure flows through i mean you may have obviously an australian presence and that's where your team's based but you know the ultimate beneficiary or holding company is Singapore, Hong Kong, maybe elsewhere, maybe there's flow through a few different jurisdictions, you know, maybe you're private, you own a private business that's a multinational that operates in a few different jurisdictions. So I think really as as the structuring becomes more complicated, you know, having the network and the expertise that you do, I mean, operating in all the various markets that you do, if I've got a client who wants advice on the Singapore tax regime, or setting up structure there, I can't give them that advice. I mean, I'd love to, but, you know, I don't, it's not my market. But who could I refer them to? I mean, like naturally I think advisors will try their best, but frankly they don't have the answers to those questions. I mean, you might go to your big Mm -hmm. four consulting firm, Deloitte, less PwC in this market because there's a few topical things happening now, KPMG, you know, you could say to your client, well, look, you have a relationship with the, the big four firm. They also have a presence in that jurisdiction. Why don't you talk to them? But, you know, we all know from working with big bureaucratic organizations, somebody in Australia solving for Australian tax, they're not necessarily having the dialogue with somebody in the Singapore office every day, every week on cross-border tax implications or, you know, structuring. So unless you've got advisors talking to each other and understanding 
the nuances of, of how each market fits together, you're not going to get the best advice. So if, if you guys have those relationships and families can come to you and, and say, well, Pierre, Teilhard, Paul, this is my dilemma, this is my complication, who are the, the team or the groups or the different advisors across these markets I need to speak to? That's the, the power that you bring, which I think has tens of thousands, you know, millions of dollars worth of implications if not advised correctly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And Australia is a really promising market for us. And I think, you know, I think the vast majority of the indicators there are like the family owned businesses, the economy. I mean, of course, uh, everyone's affected by the current macroeconomic climate. But um, hopefully, if you steer away from a full blown recession, mm. and I think Australia is a promising place where. There could be more liquidity events and more family offices being created, and that presents opportunities for uh, people like the both of us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. We're, we're hopeful. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think my, my final thought of that is just I think we've realized now that family offices, where their big hubs are, they're one, they've got to be where the talent is and which Australia has access to that in, you know, in abundance, like we're talking financial services, accountancy. Two, it's... Um, where people want to live, yeah. So London, even though the weather is shocking, people <laughs> want to come here because you know the culture, the opportunities, the life you can have. And then it's just like the the stability of the country. So they want, mm. you know, what is is your money going to be safe? And again, the same in Australia. Yes, this is, as it is in uh, like as it is in Singapore. So I think it, it ticks all the boxes. And then obviously the final bit is there wealth creation and in australia mm. obviously there's historic wealth through the natural resources that you have but there's entrepreneurial wealth popping up in like brisbane and mm. you know all sorts of places so it's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer that there will be families that have just un, in a position where they're suddenly which is a position hopefully we would all like to be in one day where they've they've got all this wealth but they've also got an operating business and they're like well i, I need to do something with it i need to mm. set some a structure up which is the term a family office and I need people to do that. How do I do it? And that's where we come in and uh, you do as well, I'm sure. Absolutely. I mean, I guess one final question I had, which I think is is hugely relevant and I'm sure one way or the other comes up in conversation. I mean, that wealth creation event, that liquidity event, you know, selling or potentially exiting a business, often private equity will be the types of investors that ultimately buy that out given these businesses hit obviously the size, the scale they do. I mean, it, it starts to rule out trade buyers, competitors, typically, I find. But when you get more mature businesses, I mean, often you don't just want to have access to the Australian private equity market. You know, you want to draw on, you know, your global private equity investors and big organizations like a KKR and EQT, that, those sort of groups, but also I guess some of the names that aren't as prevalent to Australian groups. So I guess that's the other thing. I mean, even if a family hasn't yet had that liquidity event, you know, but are in a position over the next kind of two, three, four, five years to establish a family office once they go through that ultimate liquidity event, it's not necessarily too early, I would imagine, to have a conversation or start building a relationship with Agrius and your team to build relevant relationships to maximize that exit process. If you're in a different market, you might be speaking with a family office who you know has operated in the same industry as somebody selling in a different market, or you might be well connected with private equity groups who you know have an interest in acquiring Australian agricultural assets or something like that. So 
I always find even in our field, having a conversation too early is never a mistake. And I imagine certainly for you guys and any Australian family office or pre-family office, um, it's not mm. you know harmful to have mm. a conversation and, and figure out what value yeah. you guys can add in that relationship. And I, I agree, uh, Ryan, with what you're saying. And in fact, I have the opinion that some of the best run family offices uh, haven't fully exited an operating business. They still mm. have mm. Uh, uh, diversity in terms of they have an operating business. The principals, in a way, are so busy still mm. in that wealth mm. creation journey where they are their day to day is still occupied in running the operating business, and they've uh, hired and professionalized a team to run that family office. So they, so it's not so that pot of money that's being managed by the family office is not all that there is because um, the the G, uh, it's G one and he's still in on that wealth creation journey. And he he doesn't see an immediate exit, and they they still deal with us, and we help out on the family office side. Or they he might decide that there's an event that's coming up, but he's still going to be involved with the business. But there's a mm. substantial chunk that's going to come out in terms of liquidity. So I want to professionalize that. So he doesn't have time to allocate for that family office per se. He wants to professionalize, create that thing so that that's running on its own. But you know, and uh, on the other hand. Their family offices that have had the exit, the second gen, for example, they've inherited that wealth, mm. and they have so everything is focused a lot more on that pot of money because that's all there is, and that mm. might be substantial sum, but you can imagine the family members are a lot more involved in those kind of family offices, and there's a lot more commitment there as well, and sometimes very different risk appetites and very different investment appetites mm. uh, for 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 those kind of families because there's no additional business creating that that part of uh, adding to that part of money. So mm. we, we find both both of those family offices are interesting, but the ones especially with um, with the, uh, with uh, an operating business attached to it is really interesting because uh, they can plan ahead for the future and they mm. still can get into this with a full understanding. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, I'm, I'm very mindful of time and I could honestly talk about this all night. It's 8.30 on a, a Friday night for me, so... I'm going to clock off, but, you know, thank you so much and, you know, really valuable takeaways for, I think, our clients, our network, and, um, yeah, look forward to watching and supporting you guys as you continue to build out a presence in Australia and supporting uh, the Family Office Network here. Thank Brilliant. you so much. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks guys. for having us. Cheers.